Good evening. And welcome to the first lecture of the Friends of the Book Arts Press for the 1989-90 season. On Monday, October 9th, Peter Rutledge Koch, who has been a private press printer in the San Francisco Bay Area for the past couple of decades, will be speaking on the heirs of Grabhorn and private press printing in the Bay Area generally uh, since World War II. That's Monday, October 9th. On Monday, October 23rd, Martin Davis, who works with Lottie Hellinger at the British Library in the project to publish British Museum Catalog of 15th Century Printed Books, colon, Incunables, colon, uh, England, will be here giving a lecture demonstration on the ISTC, the Incunable Short Title Catalog. This evening, we're pleased to have Michael Gullick back with us lecturing, which he has done on a number of occasions. Michael Gullick is that rare thing in bibliography, especially the earlier periods of bibliography in the history of the book. What the 19th century would have described as a miscellaneous writer on the subject. He is a considerable calligrapher and printer and teacher of printing in his own right. And in this respect, may I say, that he's recently published a well-received book on Thomas Ingmeyer, which looks like this, and there'll be a copy in the press room afterwards for you to take a look at, as well as a calligraphy review brochure on the book that uh, you may want to take away with you, which is to suggest that there will in fact be a lecture, uh, be a reception following this lecture in room 502 Butler down the hall to which you are all very welcome to attend and speak to Michael Gullick more informally afterwards over a glass of wine. Gullick has lectured here on medieval writing and on the recent acts of piety and desecration performed on Doomsday Book in England as part of the process of the recent facsimile. His lecture tonight, I presume, is also on acts of piety and desecration in that he talks on the subject, why catalog medieval manuscripts, and if so, how. It's a great pleasure to welcome him back to Columbia. Well, thank you for the welcome. And um, in, in uh, view of the sort of the Morgan Mafia, who are sort of seated in front of me, um, when I started to write this lecture, I, I got very interested uh, in, uh, in fact, in collecting manuscripts rather more than sort of cataloging. And I'm going to be talking a little bit more about, ca about uh, collectors and why manuscripts were collected and our changing attitudes towards them. And then I'm going to end up by reviewing, as I promised, some um, to give you a bird's eye view of a reader of uh, how the cataloging of manuscripts has progressed in this country in the last few years. Let me begin by reminding you of one very obvious fact. Every medieval manuscript is unique, and no one manuscript is ever quite like another. 
I would also remind you that today scholars are less likely to regard one manuscript as more important than another. All manuscripts are important, and every one has its story to tell, whether it was lavishly decorated for a prince or king, or humbly written for a scholar. The most basic questions which need to be asked of any medieval book are, who are you? Who made you? Where do you come from? And where have you been? For manuscripts have fuller stories to tell us when we know answers to some or all of those questions. And cataloguing is part of a determined attempt by scholars to place one manuscript with another, brothers, sisters, cousins, parents, and children. Because all manuscripts have relations, and rather like a giant jigsaw puzzle, we are gradually placing one with another to be able to ask questions of family and national groupings. For let me also remind you, nearly every medieval manuscript was copied in one form or another, in one way or another, from another medieval manuscript. The strength of American collections has never been in their holdings of pre-1200 monastic books, but books made in the lay or professional workshops of the later Middle Ages, that's roughly 1200 to 1500. And these, from when they were first made, have travelled and moved. The Book of Hours, the late medieval book of private devotion, a copy of which would have probably been owned by any respectable middle-class family in the 1400s and 1500s, would have passed by inheritance from one family member to another, or even have been uh, sold and passed to another family. The problem of tracing these back to their places of origin is rather different to the problems of earlier monastic books, and I, my own research interests are largely with monastic books rather than the later books. The Book of Hours has been, dis been dubbed the late medieval bestseller, and there can be few collections of medieval books without at least one example. There are at least 300 in the Walters Art Gallery in Baltimore, a holding which is comparable to the holdings of the British Library, which has somewhere between three and 400, and the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris, which has only a few more. And while we are talking of numbers, let me, re me remind you of another fact. More medieval books have survived than any other kind of medieval artifact. Most of what we know of classical antique literature is preserved in medieval books. And a great deal of what we know about medieval culture is also preserved between the covers of books. Any medieval scholar owes, that is a scholar of medieval um, sort of centuries, owes something to the evidence found in manuscripts. They may not work with manuscripts themselves. For medieval manuscripts are more than mere books with texts and pictures. So with these fundamental points in mind, the uniqueness of medieval books, the questions that have to be asked of them, where are they from, who made them and when, and the scattered ad hoc ways by which they have entered American collections, it is possible to begin considering the problem of cataloguing them. No major American institution has pursued a policy of acquisition of medieval books. Most important libraries acquired their manuscripts as gifts from individual collectors and benefactors and sometimes by chance. The earliest medieval book to enter any American institution appears to be a 15th century English manuscript presented to what is now Yale in 1714. But the heyday of collecting appears to have been in the last third of the 19th century, especially the 1890s and the early years of the 20th. In those years, there were many books of all kinds coming onto the market in Europe and, in comparison to other kinds of collectibles, were often still quite cheap. But towards the end of the 19th century, there were a handful of, of rich men who did deliberately set out to acquire extensive and important libraries, 
I presume, as some sort of mark of their sort of dignity and position. And the first important early medieval manuscript to be acquired by an American institution was a 10th century uh, lectionary which entered the New York Public Library in 1884, the gift of John Jacob Astor. The fashion in more recent years, of course, has been for more visible displays of wealth, such as paintings and contemporary art. Although these two, though mostly old masters rather than contemporary works, were collected by those who collected books in the early years of this century. Perhaps the most spectacular library, private library, built up in the late 19th century was that of Robert Ho, a founder of the Grolier Club. And of the 100 manuscripts shown at the club in 1892, over 60 were from the library of Ho. Now, this was, as far as I'm aware, the first major exhibition of manuscripts shown in America, although I don't actually know if the club was then open to the public so I'm, uh, or whether it's for members only. Now, Ho's vast library was dispersed at auction in New York in 1911-12. I don't think that uh, J. Pierpont Morgan bought any manuscripts at the sale because his librarian, Bella da Costa Green, thought that the prices would be silly. But Morgan had been collecting manuscripts since the last decade of the 19th century and had, by the time of Ho's sale, a very important collection, bought, I think, mainly from Europe rather than through the medium of American dealers. And the same can be said of Henry Walters, who bought mainly from one Paris dealer and also one dealer in Italy. And also, by the time of the Ho sale, had a library almost as spectacular as Morgan's. One of the things I learned recently um, in the uh, a catalog of the Walters manuscripts that just appeared is that apparently Walters, who died in 1931, seemed to have removed uh, from all his correspondence and business dealings the price that he paid for manuscripts because he was so concerned that in later years his collection would be valued for what it was uh, intrinsically as books rather than more than um, as something which cost him so much to assemble. And I thought that was a neat little story. Well, Morgan and uh, Walters are well-known names, but my own favourite collector of the period was Robert Garrett. His main interest was in Near Eastern manuscripts, and to go to Princeton, where his collection is now housed, is to pass a wall, it's literally a wall, of Near Eastern books, mostly in their original bindings. It is one of my favourite walks in any American library. Garrett left his books alone. But Garrett, as I mentioned earlier, had a small, I think about 170 European manuscripts, and like his Eastern manuscripts, he left those as alone as well. Among the heavy buyers at the wholesale was Henry Huntingdon, whose books and manuscripts are now in San Marino, although his library was then was housed until the 1920s in New York. But Huntingdon bought mainly through dealers, particularly G.D. Smith and A.W.S. Rosenbach. And it's from Rosenbach that John Frederick Lewis bought many of his manuscripts, left on his death to the Free Library at Philadelphia. And it is a very interesting collection with some spectacular illuminated books as well as some interesting, less lavish books. Lewis also acquired a huge collection of leaves, about over 2,000, I believe, as well as an important collection of Near and Far Eastern materials. Now, these men bought on a fairly large scale, and the smaller libraries of their contemporaries were often absorbed into theirs. To take one example, Henry Huntington not only bought manuscripts and books from dealers, but also complete libraries. And his most famous manuscript, the Ellesmere Chaucer, with the little uh, pilgrim portraits, was bought as part of the library of the Earls of, of uh, Ellesmere in England. And in that one sale, one purchase, Huntington acquired nearly 4,500 printed books, 28 medieval manuscripts, and some 12,000 other manuscripts of various kinds in one go. 
But Huntingdon also acquired five medieval manuscripts with the purchase of a small private American library, and three when he acquired another. And actually, this is a pattern which was followed much earlier in England, for example, where the great collections of the Earls of Harley and Sir Robert Cotton, two of the great collections in the British Library, were built up in the same way. Many of their manuscripts were acquired in small blocks from smaller, now largely for forgotten collectors, but to those few who deal with the origin and provenance of large collections. A rather more modern collector, who is uh, another favourite of mine, was C.L. Ricketts, who owned and managed an engrossing studio in Chicago. He was interested in the history of writing and amassed a large collection of writing books, both printed and written, mostly post-medieval, of course. Most of his collection was acquired by the Newbury Library, with some material going to the Lilly Library in Bloomington, Indiana. And it is one of the most important collections of this kind of material in the world. Ricketts also owned some medieval manuscripts and leaves, and two of his leaves contained Anglo-Saxon, and these are incredibly rare outside the Cotton Collection in the British Library and the Parker Collection at Corpus Christi College in Cambridge. And a recent exhibition of Anglo-Saxon manuscripts in America mustered only about a dozen items. And Ricketts' two leaves were recorded as untraced. And fortunately, just in the way that these things do, they recently turned up. And uh, very fortunately and properly, they've, they've just been bought by the Newbury. More modern collectors whose collections are important are those of William Glazier, now in the Morgan Library, William Richardson, now at Harvard, Philip Hofer, partly now at Harvard, Thomas Marston, who has been giving books to Yale, and Edwin Beinecke, who has funded the acquisition of books at Yale as well. And it is Yale who acquired the first medieval manuscript to enter an American institution who has, in recent years, enormously increased its holdings of medieval books. Less typical, perhaps, is the late entry of the Getty Museum, whose foundation of a collection of medieval books was laid by the acquisition of, a, of the private collection of a Swiss collector. And the Getty's been buying discreetly ever since. This pattern, the pattern of the private collector donating to the public institution, is common in every aspect of art collecting in the United States. But the early collectors, Ho, Morgan, and Walters, collected, I think, largely for the beauty of the books, and in the case of Morgan and Walters, with some awareness of the total unity of the arts. For both men also collected many other kinds of objects. Some of Morgan's collecting in other fields may now be partly forgotten, for part of it was dispersed and a lot of it went to the Metropolitan. But Walters' collections are still together in the gallery built for them, and so are Henry Huntington's spectacular collection of English 18th century portraits. It cannot be emphasized, I think, too much that the early collectors of manuscripts in the United States usually collected because they liked books. It is a very understandable motive, and one which I expect all of us here to some degree share. For the study of medieval books at that time, let me remind you, late medieval books with pictures, was not a subject very much beloved of academic scholarship. It was not really until the 1930s, and then hardly then, that the so-called minor arts, including late medieval book illumination, was regarded as a serious subject of study. American medievalists of the first third of the 20th century did their fieldwork mostly in European libraries and on very early manuscripts, say pre-1000. And their interests were largely, but not entirely, textual. They were concerned, as were their European counterparts, in establishing sound texts of classical and patristic authors. These kinds of manuscripts were, and still are, rare in America. Collectors who acquired books with pictures were hardly taken seriously but by a small handful of pioneer connoisseurs and collectors. And do not forget either that the taste for things medieval, that is, collecting medieval objects, came fairly late to America. 
medieval sculpture and architectural fragments seem first to have aroused interest in New England and the Boston area. Perhaps this is hardly a surprise, for it is an area of the country still very European in its outlook. Isabella Stuart Gardner had some Romanesque and Gothic capitals in her collection as early as 1892, and they may still be seen in her wonderful Boston Museum. She was certainly a pioneer in that regard. And Bob Rosenthal of the University of uh, Chicago Libraries, the Special Collections, recently told me of a very important collection of manuscripts which were sold in Chicago in 1886, which it seems to me very early, and I must look into that. A sculptor, George Gray Barnard, was a keen admirer of medieval artefacts and opened in Boston in 1914 a museum with his collection called The Cloisters. A familiar name? In 1926, the entire collection was bought by John D. Rockefeller, Jr. to be incorporated into his own The Cloisters Museum, opened as part of the Met in 1938. Medieval art history hardly existed as a discipline in American universities before the 1920s, and an influential figure was the classicist C.R. Murray, who joined the art department at Princeton. He encouraged art historical studies, founded the College Art Association in its journal, the Art Bulletin, which remains one of the premier scholarly journals in the field. Now, this is not the time or place to discuss the rise of art history in American institutions, and medieval art history in particular, but to point to the wide gap which existed between those who collected medieval books and those who were studying medieval art. In the pioneer days of the 1920s and 1930s, it would even have been difficult to consult medieval books in any large numbers in America. So many were held in private collections. Let me remind you, the Morgan opened its doors to the public in 1924, and access then, as now, is, is fairly limited. And the Walters opened its doors in 1934, Fortunately, we have a remarkably clear picture of the collecting of medieval books in America. The name de Ricci is familiar to every medievalist all over the world. Seymour de Ricci was a Frenchman by birth and a bibliographer of enormous energy. He was born in 1881 and died in Paris in 1942. His earliest published work was issued in 1901, and between then and his death, over 50 works by him are listed in the British Museum catalogue of printed books. Between 1935 and 1940, two stout volumes with an index forming the third, titled Senses of Medieval and Renaissance Manuscripts in the United States and Canada, was published. After some ten years of intensive labor, with the help of his assistant W.J. Wilson, De Ricci attempted to list and briefly describe every medieval manuscript and many post-medieval manuscripts in North America. De Ricci, for our purposes, worked at almost exactly the right time. The patterns of scholarship were changing, Medieval books were becoming of interest to others than book collectors, others than book collectors. And when de Ricci worked, many manuscripts were still in private hands. Years of visiting private collections as well as public ones, with numerous correspondence to owners and librarians, were necessary to compile the census. And it's really an, a staggering piece of work. It has about 15,000 items from some 500 libraries. About half of them were private libraries. And its publication made scholars aware for the first time of the sheer number of medieval manuscripts in the United States. De Ricci provided a brief description of the contents of the manuscripts he listed and their provenance. De Ricci was interested, above all else, in where manuscripts came from, their provenance. He was intimately familiar with thousands of booksellers and auction catalogues and with the lives and possessions of collectors and the enduring memorial of the census and why it will never be a book resting unconsulted in library stacks is this aspect of his work. 
Almost anything that de Ricci has to say about the travels of manuscripts is of value, often deduced from small clues and evidences, as well as his great knowledge and ability to make connections between books and descriptions of them in earlier literature. And when he missed manuscripts in collections, as he occasionally did, we often know little about where they came from. A supplement to de Ricci was published in 1962, edited by C.U. Fay and W.H. Bond, and by this date, a number of collections had passed into institutional ownership. Some had been dispersed, and some institutions had acquired additional material. And the description of new material, about 3,000 perhaps, are rather terser than those in de Ricci. And there were certainly important omissions, as well as some important corrections. And perhaps I should also mention Cristela. Cristela is a familiar name too, as de Ricci. And his list of the printed catalogues and unpublished inventories of the extant collections of Latin manuscripts dating from before 1600, now in its third edition, is arranged by city and then by library. And although for America he mostly refers to De Ricci, De Ricci and Cristela are the two sort of books that most people interested in manuscripts are going to turn to first. De Ricci and the supplement were the cornerstones on which all serious work done on American collections was based, and they have served scholars well for about 50 years. Many specialist lists of certain kinds of manuscripts have been published based on de Ricci and visits to libraries. Lists of legal manuscripts and liturgical manuscripts, for example. And these are well known to scholars of particular disciplines. But for the student of manuscripts in general, knowledge about the entire holdings of an institution have, with rare exceptions, had to depend on the information provided by de Ricci. Now, I've rather loosely spoken of de Ricci as providing brief descriptions of the contents of manuscripts. In reality, de Ricci is hardly more than a hand list, providing the principal contents of a manuscript, with, particularly in the case of lavishly decorated books, an indication of the importance of the decoration and some bibliography. There are no illustrations in de Ricci, and, as before his work was published and for a long time afterwards, there were virtually no comprehensive catalogues of collections, what other sources were easily available to show the richness of American holdings? Except for decorated manuscripts, the answer is virtually none. But for art historians searching out pictures, there has been and continues to be an important source, exhibition catalogues. The earliest exhibition of medieval manuscripts in the United States appears to have been the show of manuscripts and early printed books with hand decoration, held at the Grolier Club in 1892. I'd be interested if anybody knows of one earlier. The earliest public exhibition to show medieval books, again with early printed books, appears to have been a show held at the Metropolitan in 1924. And it was little surprise to me to learn that the exhibition was organised by W.M. Ivins, who long worked at the Department of Prints and Drawings at the Met, and whose books, Prints and Visual Communication, is one of the great books on the graphic arts of this century. It seemed to me entirely appropriate and typical that Ivins would have made no artificial division between manuscript and printed book in his show. The first important exhibition of only medieval manuscripts held in America was a selection of many of the most important decorated manuscripts in the Morgan Library, and the show was held at the New York Public Library in 1934, and the catalogue was illustrated with good notes on the exhibited books by um, Morgan's librarian, who was a rather remarkable woman called Bella de Costa Green, and I've never met anybody who actually knew her at all, and it would be interesting to sort of sit and meet somebody who actually knew the lady. Um, the catalogue was the first of many to be published by the Morgan, and then, as now, they are distinguished for their appearance as well as their content. And the Morgan has also been remarkably generous with its loans to other exhibitions over the years. 
And I think there are only two important collections which were forbidden in their foundation to loan books. One is the Huntingdon and the other was the John Carter Brown in Providence. Uh, the last recently uh, sold its manuscripts. Um, the Lord Collection at the Bodleian Library, too, that has the same provision, that, that the books are never allowed to leave the Bodleian, so they're never exhibited elsewhere. The first major loan exhibition of manuscripts was held in 1949 and was organised at the Walters Art Gallery and shown were many of the most important illuminated manuscripts owned by institutions and private collectors with some interesting odds and ends. And the show was organised by the remarkable Dorothy Minor, who's keeper of manuscripts at the Walters since 1934, and the well-illustrated catalogue was written by her, and it was the first of several major exhibitions she organised. And in the, in the introduction to the 1949 show, she paid tribute to the work of De Ricci in showing the depth and wealth of American manuscript holdings. Since 1949, there have been many other important exhibitions devoted in whole or part to medieval books. They have almost always been concerned with pictures, and the catalogues of the shows have published, often for the first and only time, important descriptions and illustrations. In this, they have been a valuable supplement to Dorici, though by their nature highly selective in their descriptions intended for the general public as well as for scholars. But if there has been an underlying trend to exhibitions here, it has been towards increased specialisation. Early exhibitions showed manuscripts from many centuries, and although these big blockbuster shows have continued, there have also been interesting shows devoted to specific aspects of medieval art and books. Medieval and Renaissance music manuscripts were shown in 1953 at the Toledo Museum of Art, and it was then and is now a very specialised preserve. The Morgan held a show of liturgical manuscripts in 1964, and the catalogue remains one of the best introductions to what is an exceedingly complicated and specialised subject. The Morgan again held in 1976 an exhibition of all known Anglo-Saxon manuscripts in America, or rather those manuscripts which contained Anglo-Saxon. In 1988, Harvard held an exhibition of manuscripts concerned with the Bible in just one century, the 12th. And also in 1988, Yale held an exhibition devoted to the medieval book itself. That is, the show was concerned with the parchment, the ruling of manuscripts, techniques of decoration and binding and so on. And I think this is interesting, for specialised exhibitions on Dremtov 50 years ago reflect trends in scholarship. We are beginning to see that the study of the medieval book as an object in its own right is a worthwhile study, christened with the unfortunate name Codicology. And while I am one of those who believes that this new interest should serve merely as a tool for the study of the whole book, the attitude is a far cry from the early collectors who are interested almost entirely with books as containing pictures. So, exhibition catalogues have been important during the past 50 years, and I've been surprised at how many exhibition, how many different kinds of exhibitions there have been, in fact, of medieval books, and I'm starting to draw up a bibliography of them, and when I started to do it, I was rather surprised at just how much material sort of kept on turning up. And they've, so they've been important as a visual source of information, as well as their descriptions. They are now seen as a perfectly respectable way of publishing research and the most important of them are very important books. I avidly collect them, but I'm equally interested in them as showing changing perceptions toward medieval books by scholars, and also how they have been the principal means of educating the public and demonstrating to them the richness of medieval culture. This education, of course, is always going to remain lopsided, for books are difficult to show, with it usually being possible to show only two pages at a time. 
It is possible to have some sympathy for early collectors such as John Ruskin in England who cut the miniatures from some of their books to give to their friends as a means of sharing their love for medieval art. Well, if this practice is now regarded as quite barbaric, it's certainly one which is still not unknown in the trade. The Morgan, in some of its shows, displays good colour transparencies and other spreads and pages from exhibited manuscripts as a means of overcoming the problem of the book as a form. But somebody at the Morgan told me that they've received complaints from the public who believe that the library had actually been cutting up its books. Common? The best exhibition catalogues provide a basic physical description of the manuscripts shown, but the bulk of the entries are quite naturally concerned with what is being exhibited to the viewer. For comprehensive descriptions, only a proper catalogue will do. The two earliest catalogues of medieval manuscripts of any part of an American institution were some of Pierpont Morgan's books. A catalogue of the manuscripts and printed books Morgan acquired from a bookseller in England, mostly of uh, items from a collection of the Earl of Gosforth, was published in 1901. And in 1906, one volume of four was devoted to manuscripts mostly obtained from Richard Bennett, who in turn had acquired most, mostly from the collection of William Morris. I think Bennett was the collector who didn't allow books greater than 13 inches tall, was that, or 15 inches tall. Any book that was bigger than 15 inches he got rid of, so that's why the Morgan hasn't got quite all of Morris's books, because the big ones went. Bizarre, collectors and idiosyncrasies. And uh, the catalogue was published by Morgan. Of course, in those days, his, his library was private. But what gives the 1906 catalogue special interest was its author, M.R. James. James was a giant among manuscript catalogues and also a very fine ghost story writer. And if you've not read his ghost stories, then uh, they're still well worth reading. James catalogued nearly all of the manuscripts found in the Cambridge Colleges, as well as manuscripts at Eton, Aberdeen, and Westminster Abbey. He never actually came to America, and his work on Morgan's books was, was done in England. But as an example and inspiration in the English-speaking world, James belongs to a small handful of great manuscript scholars of the 19th and early 20th centuries, whose energy now appears astonishing. James was extraordinarily widely read, very Catholic in the range of his interests, and was blessed with the greatest asset of a manuscript cataloger, an acute visual memory and enormous powers of recall. If some of James's work is now regarded as a little inadequate, this is to forget that he was one of the pioneers and worked when there were almost no reference books that are the standbys for today's medievalists. What is remarkable is how much of James's work holds good today. His judgments are always worthy of regard, and like De Ricci and others, James could make connections between books and owners. The earliest catalogue of an American public institution was published in 1912 and described some 90 manuscripts at the University of Chicago. Many of them were actually post-medieval. And now there's about 850, I think, manuscripts at the university there. Although no material was earlier than the 15th century, apart from some binding scraps in later books which were very carefully noted, and many would now be regarded as post-medieval, some were as late as the 19th century, the catalogue of Goodspeed, a biblical scholar, and Sprengling is in some ways rather better than some of James's work, although certainly based on the model of James and his predecessors. But after the Chicago catalogue, with the exception of a few catalogues of private collections, usually not very good, there is nothing, as far as I know, until 1937. This was when a catalogue of the Lewis manuscripts bequeathed to the Philadelphia Free Library appeared. And it's not a very good, but it's a useful sort of catalogue. And after 1937, there's another great leap to 1965, when a catalogue 
of the University of Pennsylvania manuscripts was published. It lists 1,150 dating from about 1,000 to 1,800. The medieval manuscript descriptions are hardly a la lot larger than those of Dorici in the supplement, but it was able to date and place some of the material with a little bit more accuracy. In 1978, a modest catalogue of the manuscripts at the University of Notre Dame appeared. The contents of the collection, none of the books are of the first importance, were carefully described, and cited were modern works of reference and scholarship. The physical descriptions are very brief, hardly an improvement on James, and there are no illustrations. Now, if I've spoken a little of the James model, that's because I think James as a figure has been a constant inspiration to almost anybody who's attempted to catalogue any kind of collection. And I should now explain a little what I mean before I go on to review the great spate of catalogues which have been published in the 1980s in the, in the United States. James improved on older catalogues by providing a physical, physical description, listing texts, listing the subjects of miniatures, and assembling the evidence for the history of the book, together with reflections and comments. An 18th or earlier catalogue might limit itself to author and content, parchment or paper, size, folio or quarter, etc., date, often merely as sort of century, 13th century, 14th century, and maybe a stab at the country of origin. James improved on this, as did his predecessors of the late 19th century. But they were able, don't forget, to take, advantages, to take advantage of the advances in the photomechanical reproduction of manuscripts and all other art objects. For remember that it was barely a hundred years ago that the halftone was invented, and as soon as it was, a, as it was possible to photomechanically reproduce things, and then there were many pictures of things published, it was then possible, really for the first time, to have an accurate record of what something really looked like. And that really was only 100 years ago. James, in particular, inspired the work of N.R. Kerr. And it is Kerr's example and methodology which has been very influential here, as well as in England and Europe. Neil Kerr was a reader in paleography at Oxford, and his working life extended from the early 1930s to his death in the early 1980s. He was, without doubt, the most influential figure in English manuscript studies of his generation. The authority on English manuscripts, English medieval and Renaissance libraries, and English medieval and post-medieval collectors, private and institutional. And Kerr's catalogue of manuscripts containing Anglo-Saxon, which appeared in the 1950s, after 20 years of work, is the single most important tool for the study of Anglo-Saxon. But towards the end of his life, a series of remarkable catalogues began to appear, the first in 1969. Kerr set out to describe every medieval manuscript in every English collection but for those which had already been described in decent or reasonably decent catalogues. This mostly meant the work of M.R. James, but Kerr did also set out not to describe the major collections, those at the British Library, Oxford or Cambridge, as well as some other larger collections, but to seek out smaller collections and to date three stout volumes in Clarendon blue cloth each with as many as 600 pages on a very thin Bible-type paper, have appeared the third posthumously. And the fourth and last, although hopefully there will be an index volume, is at present being worked on by some of Kerr's friends and students. Now, Kerr's methodology and his eyes have, as I said, been influential. Perhaps one individual who's encouraged the production of catalogues here, and a friend of Neil Kerr, was Richard is Richard Rouse, Professor of History at UCLA. And he certainly advised and encouraged and helped to initiate work as well as providing um, contact with European scholars. 
He's certainly not the only figure, and nor was his help always needed. Uh, Lillian Randall, who's just published the first volume of her catalogue of the Walters manuscripts, I know has been working on, on them for, what, 20 years, 25 years, for much of her working life. The mechanics of cataloguing sound very simple, and a common formula would be as follows. So this is perhaps how a modern catalogue, how it would actually look, the sort of information which it ought to convey. First, the accessional call number of the manuscript, and a title of some kind, perhaps just the author or the type of book about to be described. This might be followed by the language of the text, Latin or a vernacular. There could then be some summary information deduced from the manuscript, its date and country, sometimes place, and origin. This is the basic information. Next would be some description of the support, paper or parchment, or a mixture of both, and the size. Today, there is often some attempt to describe the nature and quality of parchment, for some kinds of parchment are distinctive, such as 13th century thin parchment used in small Bibles, or 15th century Florentine parchment. The watermarks of paper might be described. Next, there can be some mention of the nature of the pricking and ruling employed in the manuscript to act as a guide to the scribe, what kind of tool was used, the dimensions of the writing space. And then some attempt to define the kind of scripts involved and the number of scribes who may have been involved in writing the manuscript. It is the content of the manuscript which really forms the core of any good catalogue description. Most people who use catalogues want to find out what the text in the manuscript is. And there are many more text manuscripts than there are decorated manuscripts. If you go to exhibitions and see spectacular illuminated manuscripts, they actually are only a very small proportion of the total number of medieval books produced. Most medieval books do not have pictures. The content of the manuscript might form the core of the entry, the number of works, if there are more than one, with their opening titles and their opening words, and often the closing words too. There are now numerous aids in the identification of medieval texts, and one of the problems in cataloguing and working with manuscripts is literally just keeping up with what has been published. List, indexes, bibliographies, and so on and so forth. The tools available are now enormous, and it's been very much in about the last 40 years that these sort of guides and aids have appeared. If a manuscript was decorated, it is usual to describe it, and careful catalogues will not only describe the principal miniature or initials, but also the minor and secondary decoration. There is still some difficulty and flexibility in, this, in the description of this kind of secondary work, as there is still not really an accepted terminology to describe it. Closing discussion would include some account of the binding, especially if it appears to be medieval or highly decorated. And if there is a colophon in the manuscript giving details of production, the scribe or the artist, then this would be printed in full. And so there would be the names of, of previous owners from the past to the present, and anything which could be helpful to another in placing the manuscript. The combination of names in a manuscript might mean nothing to the cataloger, but might be just the right clue for a reader. And certainly important annotations and glosses should also be reported. Throughout the description there might be reference to studies of the manuscript or to related manuscripts, and always if possible some reference to a printed edition of the text, and how the text of the manuscript might be similar or different to a standard edition. A concluding and vital part of any catalogue entry would be the listing of all the principal bibliography concerning the manuscript as a whole. Some manuscripts have been intensely studied and some hardly at all. But the best catalogues are made as neutral as possible. That is, the tone of the description should be as dispassionate as possible, presenting faithfully a true description and avoiding subjective judgments. For it is a paradox of a kind that a published catalogue description is the beginning 
not the end of knowledge. There will always be someone, somewhere, who will know more about a particular manuscript than the person cataloguing it. Particularly as in the United States, collections are of a highly miscellaneous nature. The purpose of a catalogue is to make available to others basic kinds of information, and this information is now expected to be more comprehensive than ever before. And then, almost as soon as the ink on the printed catalogue is dry, the catalogue will become to begin will become start to become out of date. This is really the why of manuscript cataloguing. It is a little more advanced in its concept and intention than Linnaeus's cataloguing of plants in the 18th century. He identified the most idiosyncratic or unique feature to a plant and called this a particular kind of plant, and those with similar but different features were regarded as related, and those with quite different features were grouped together in a different family. But with medieval manuscripts, each manuscript is unique. There are kinds of manuscripts which have textual similarities. Books of ours are a certain kind of book, and all books of ours are related. This is what a textual scholar would need to know. But the scribe who wrote a particular book of ours may have written other kinds of manuscripts. So the scholar studying handwriting does not need the same kind of information as a textual scholar. The scribe who wrote one book of ours may have collaborated with an artist just once. And other works by the scribe or artist may have been made in collaboration with others. The permutations are endless. But perhaps the ultimate why of manuscript cataloguing is the natural desire of mankind to order and arrange what is around him. Although medieval manuscripts and everything else around us remains more or less constant, our attitudes and perceptions toward them are continually changing. This is reflected in the changes of attitudes toward books. A hundred years ago, medieval manuscripts were collected in America for their intrinsic beauty and interest by a handful of people who responded to them as objects. Perhaps they were often quite unable to explain in any, any great detail why they liked them. Today, we see manuscripts differently, and scholars and collectors might still possess that basic gut response to books as books, which we all understand. Though I do wonder sometimes about some scholars who seem to me to regard books as objects serving their own self-interests and for their advancement, rather, rather more than primarily objects to be cherished. But let me conclude by describing for you what has been achieved in the way of cataloguing in recent years. Two volumes, each describing 250 manuscripts, have been published of the collection at Yale, and two more are expected and are being worked on at present. The small collection at the Claremont Colleges, a group of colleges in North Los Angeles, has been finished. The first four volumes describing 100 manuscripts has just appeared with the Walters Collection at Baltimore. Two volumes describing 390 manuscripts, the complete collection has been published with the manuscripts at the Huntingdon Library in San Marino. A volume of the manuscripts at the Newbury Library is in the press and might come out this fall, if not next spring. And the first of several volumes of manuscripts in the Library of Congress is soon to appear as well. The catalogue of manuscripts at the University of California at Berkeley is in preparation. I think there's about 200 there. And another catalogue is being worked on at present of the manuscripts at Harvard, about 700. Now, each of these collections do, to some extent, have their own character. Uh, their own character. The Yale manuscripts are fairly miscellaneous. The Walters manuscripts is very strong on French decorated manuscripts. The Huntingdon is very strong on English vernacular manuscripts and manuscripts of English origin and provenance. The Newbury Library is a very miscellaneous collection with very few finely decorated manuscripts. You can see from my list that many of the most important libraries in the United States have either finished or begun cataloguing their medieval books. 
Collections for which there is no catalogue plan, so far as I know, is the very extensive holdings at the Morgan Library, though many of their manuscripts are very well known through publications of other kinds. Columbia, upstairs, where there's a very useful collection of books. Philadelphia, where, as I've mentioned, there are hundreds of leaves. The University of Chicago has a huge collection, which I don't think is being looked at, and so on. There are also many numerous small collections, some with only a few leaves. Uh, one of my favourite finds, by the way, is I was taken to um, the Circus Museum in, um, in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, there's Tom Thumb's carriage sits in the uh, entranceway. And uh, in the Circus Museum in San Antonio is a very small and very nice, complete English 13th century Bible, as well as a leaf from the Gutenberg Bible. Uh, the... Um, uh, the Gutenberg Bible, Bible too. But anyway, that's an odd sort of find, and I'm sure there's lots of other small things like that to be discovered. There is lots of work waiting to be done on these small collections, and much as Neil Kerr recognised in England and then, then said about fulfilling a need, perhaps someday there will be a scholar or scholars who, now that the large collections uh, are being described or in the process of being described, will set themselves the task of searching out the manuscripts in these small collections and cataloguing them. And I've heard at least two scholars who talked to me about the possibility of producing a catalogue of dated manuscripts in America. That is, manuscripts which contain evidence of the date of their writing and production. And there's been a lot of European catalogues uh, done in the last 30 years. Um, and of course, they're of inestimable value to paleographers because um, so much cataloguing of medieval and describing medieval books is trying to relate the unknown with the known. And if you have a date for something and you can say that this writing was done in this year, then you can sort of begin to compare something which doesn't have a date. And once catalogues have been made, then it will be possible to ask searching questions with all the material available in print. That day is a long way off. For Europe, still has very much to do to catch up on the recent example of our American friends. A catalogue is the eyes and window of a collection, a collection of any kind. I confess that I am addicted to them, and the older I get, the more I enjoy nothing better than to curl up in bed a catalogue to hand, and with paper and pencil to make notes. For catalogues are to be used, and their joy is that they are usable by certain...